and welcome to episode 113 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Monday, April 17th, 2023. A big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? Pretty good. Can't you tell that I'm like sun-kissed? You do look sun-kissed. You look very healthy. Really, that's it. Just right here. Yeah. I am. Well, the rest of you is covered up because it's cold. R- really, really good at sunblock and avoidance. Or I, I'm a shade seeker. I'm that's like the smart. only person who can go to Mexico and come back nearly the same color. <laughs> but you do look a little, you have a little glow. You do have a glow. Yeah, yeah a little a nice, bit. Nice glow. Not nothing, nothing too dramatic. Yeah, we have both been traveling, so you will hear about that. So we're not doing an official on-the-road segment. We're going to just mix everything in with our regular segments of On the Needles, On the Easel, On the Table, and On the Nightstand. And there is construction going on outside of my house on the street. It sounds like they stop at the moment. I'm not sure if the sounds will make it. I will try and block them out, but just in case... and possibly for the next few episodes. When I rolled through, I was like, gentlemen, we're about <laughs> to record a podcast oh, that, was that nice involves of you. knitting and noodles and, you know, tacos. And <laughs> and they seem to, you know, take that under consideration. That's good. So, so we, we'll should, we should get going. And also, it has been almost three weeks since we've talked. So there's a lot of things to talk about. Yay! So on the needles, <gasps> finished object! Yay! I finished my morning sunshine cowl. It seems so long since I've talked about any of this. Oh my gosh. Okay. The morning sunshine cowl by Stephanie Lotvin, also known as Tellybean Knits. And this was with the yarn set that I got at Stitches West. Oh, so this is my first Stitches West 2023 finished object. Yay! That sounds. So the yarn is from Nano Stitch Lab Microsock in their California Poppy Bundle. So there was a magenta and a bright orange, Poppy Orange. I remember that from last time. A light speckly kind of yellow, a brighter yellow, and a turquoise. Oh my gosh, so fun. Such a fun knit, such fun colors. I am so happy with this project. And I found a bag to take it to New York. (laughs) because I was worried about that. I realized I had another California-themed project bag that was less substantial, still beautiful, and could hold all of the little mini schemes. So that was perfect. So that was kind of my main project. This was the project bag that had the most adorable lining fabric, which if you're a quilter or do project bag type things, check out the state flower series on joanne.com and you'll see every state flower represented so sweet california of course it has an amazing flower so we're lucky there but you can check and see if your state is represented yeah so that bag was from crafty little fox Mm -hmm. crafty little fox who had amazing bags i got a separate one as well and courtney got one with cheetahs on it and this one was kind of a a smaller sized small to medium sized project bag with the nice lining and then a poppy patch on the front and then it has this 
cool thing you can um, roll the sides down and it basically makes it a lovely little yarn bowl. So very adorable, very practical. Good design. Yes, which is also why I didn't want to leave it behind because I really wanted to use it. But anyway, I also wanted to get the project done, uh, which I did. I don't. Th- I did not finish it on my trip because we were so on the go all the time that there was not a lot of knitting time. I had some time on the airplane to work on it, and when I got home, I was. I just really wanted to finish it, so I did. So it's just a really cool pattern. The original, I think, calls for six colors. I just blended the first two sections and just use one color for that. The first section is just super tiny stockinette even, I think, just to kind of get you going. And so it is a cowl with a pointed front. So it looks like a kerchief or like you've got a triangular shawl wrapped around you without the dangling ends to worry about. And each of the sections is a different textured stitch. So there was a smocking stitch. There was... I don't know what that one that is called. Cross yeah, one. the crisscross. Yeah. I think she calls it the cross stitch. Um, I had done it on my Hohilo Gatelli shawl a while ago. And it's the next step in my oh. um, Westover knit, knit along from 2021. Nice. That's my next move. Yeah. So I had plenty of yarn for all of the sections, except for the last one, as I was binding off with the blue. She didn't specify a bind off, so I decided to do sort of a, not a super stretchy bind off, but a little bit more stretchy, but it, to make it more stretchy, you use more yarn. And I think I got to about three quarters of the way through and I was out of yarn. So I had to unpick my whole bind off, which wasn't a million stitches, but it was, you know, a few and then redo it as just a regular bind off, which seems to have worked out fine. I did it loosely enough to have it not pull in and do weird things with the edge. So it's just super fun. I blocked it. I still need to take some pictures and put it up so you guys can see it. But yeah, it's, I showed it to Courtney. It's very bright and cheery and and spring-like. Yeah, it's so fun. Yeah. She made a version in DK as well. So you can do it in fingering or DK, depending on what you have. Neither of them take a ton of yarn and it's just super fun really quick little project. So I enjoyed that very much. The Morning Sunshine Cowl by Tellybean Knits. I am still working on my Gridline sweater by Suzanne Summer in the Lemonade Shop Simple Sock in Ugg People. This is the one where I was concerned that I was going to be playing Yarn Chicken. I did finish the first sleeve and realized that it took about 50 grams of yarn and I had 30 grams left. So that was not going to work. I think I had talked about my various options that I was pondering before I knew that in the last episode, one of which was hoping that 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 this colorway was not a one-off colorway from the dyer. And in fact, she sent an email like two days after we recorded saying, hey, guess what's in my next update? Ugg people. So I said, well, I'm just going to order another skein because I was I was 95% sure I needed more yarn and that it would be a decent amount of yarn so I just went ahead and ordered it it's a pre-order so it's going to take a little bit of time not a ton maybe a few more weeks so I kind of put that on hold I did a little bit of the second arm just to get it started so I think my plan is to I will alternate skeins on the rest of the sleeve just to make sure that it looks as seamless as possible and then I will just have the uh the collar 
So, and then I will have a new sweater. And it seems the first sleeve and the body of the sweater seem to fit when I try them on. So hopefully when I do the second sleeve, it will continue to fit. And uh, yeah, so I'm pretty excited about that. I was a little sad to put it aside, but I think that'll be smart. And then that way I can just finish it off. Also on my trip, I started a new pair of socks. Uh, and this, These are for me. So I'm using the Vanilla is the New Black pattern by Anna Fletcher because that's uh, this seems to work well for me. And the yarn is Vintage Stripe by Yarntini. And this has been in my stash since May 2009. Wow. That is a lot of math to figure out how long that is. It's a very long time. It's possibly one of my oldest sock yarns in my stash. So this is that was one of my goals, though, was to like every quarter do some really old yarn. And I think this one qualifies. It is very cheerful. I posted a photo of this on Instagram. It's the blue and white, no, blue, blue, white and pink stripes, mostly pink, two different shades of pink. I forget exactly, but very fun. I'm enjoying it. I had some time on a train to knit that sock and I've been going to some concerts. So I've been doing a little more knitting on it. I need to turn the heel on the first one. So I'm going to have to sit down and do that because I have to be paying attention when I'm working on that. So I need to pick a moment to, to make that happen. And then after that, it'll just be the foot, which is super easy. But that, you know, makes me happy when I see it. And then I am working on another of my goals, which was charity knitting, specifically knitted knockers for my knitting retreat, which is coming up. And that is sort of the group charity knit that we do. I haven't done it for the past couple of years. So I decided this year that I did want to get some done. And I was kind of in between projects. So I decided, well, let's get one of these started. So I've done one so far. <laughs> so they're knit prosthetic breasts. That's the word I'm looking for. I hopefully will <laughs> knock out a few more um, before my retreat, which is in a few weeks. And they take, I don't know, half an hour to make one. I have yarn. Um, there are specific yarns that they require just to make sure that they are super soft and comfortable and washable and, and all those things that uh, someone might need. So yeah, so that was, that felt satisfying to, to get that done. Do you feel them? No, you used to, but then they have lately said to stop doing that because people want to fill it. It's A, it's easier to ship if they're flat. Yeah. And people want to fill it you know, as much as they want to fill it. So, right. yeah. So, and that, that just saves, saves a little step there. So that was good. And then the big exciting news is I started my dark academia sweater by Sharon Hartley. This was my big yarn shopping project at Stitches West this year. I knew I wanted to do this sweater. It is amazing. It came out a few months ago. It's colorwork sweater. It has a design of like the outline of gothic windows. So sort of Super like a, dramatic, very dramatic. So we were trying to find yarn. We ended up finding, and I say we, because it was Courtney and I and our other friend Telly who was there and we were all, <laughs> it was a project the whole four days trying to figure out the best combination of yarn. I think because the sweater pattern is so involved that we were all really invested in finding what was going to look great on you and and really make the pattern pop yeah. because you could if you didn't have enough contrast you'd lose it right you know potentially and then yeah and some of the colors we would find two of us would like but one of us would be like yeah i don't know and then 
you know, that it would be a different two of us that would like the yarn and finding things that I actually felt like I would enjoy knitting with and want to wear. Like sometimes the yarn could be super contrasty, but it wasn't colors that I loved. Then, you know, I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to work with something I didn't love and I wouldn't want to wear it. And I was not going to put that much work into something and then not not wear it. Um, so we ended up with Porter Wool Company fingering in Huntress, which is this amazing dark foresty green that I love very much. And then the contrast color is Serendipidae Coastside in Blossom, which is a pinky, peachy, muted. Yeah, it's a muted yeah. peach, pastelly, and it is warm. And that dark green porter wool was one of the standout highlights for me of the whole show yeah that was super fun um so shout out to porter wool the green is really warm too so that these two colors are magic together yeah so i have started and i showed courtney where i am in in progress and so she's i'm smitten it's it's and it's so fun so i i ended up starting it just because i had put aside the grid lines and i think it's gonna it's just gonna take me a while because the chart is pretty intense and it goes through the whole body of the sweater so it's not it's not just a yoke patterning it is the whole body so it's gonna take a little while so i just i didn't have a lot of other things going on so i thought i would get it started yeah and it's very very potato chippy you just want to keep doing one more row one more row it is also I haven't gotten too far I think I'm on row 15 or something so the rows are still not are not huge yet which also makes it nice I'm sure as it gets bigger and and each row takes a longer time or each round takes a longer time it will go more and more slowly but it's still it's very fun to watch the pattern emerging and I already know I've made one mistake but I decided to just leave it and it's fine and that is all my knitting it's very exciting Bravo. Thanks. So that is all my actual knitting, but I did have some knitting adventures in New York. I went yarn shopping for one thing. (laughs) I sure hope so. There was a very cute little yarn shop on the Upper West Side called Knitty City, and we were doing some college tours up there. So I said, hey, while we're, you know, killing time in between activities let's go to the yarn store and boy two is a trooper and he's like sure i did also take him to levan bakery and we got chocolate chip cookies so he was you know pretty happy about that as well plus they went on all these Uh, college tours boys (laughs) (laughs) and we did spend at least half well i might be making that up we spent a good deal of time in the juilliard music bookstore while he was looking at music books so he owed me Anyway, it was very lovely, nice people, very chatty, and they carried Plucky Knitter yarn. And so I, I fully went in there not planning on buying anything. What? Well, it's important so, to support the local economy. Yes. Okay. So not <laughs> intending. Okay. So intending maybe to buy a skein of if there was a local yarn dyer that they had. They had a Five Burrows yarn like gradient set, which was not, it was very neon. So that was not speaking to me, which is fine. But then they had, oh my gosh, it's this amazing purple in plucky worsted. And so, yeah, that came home with me because I don't have a lot. I'm telling myself I don't have a lot of solids, worsted weight yarn and sweater quantities. So that was very exciting 
to come home with that. I can't wait to see this color. Oh, yeah, I have to show you. I don't know. I have no idea what I'm going to make with it, but it uh, something something with a like a texture, I think, like cables or, or something. So we will see. That is that is in progress. And then we went to the Cloisters one afternoon. A, I want, I've always wanted to go and have never been. And again, we were already on the Upper West Side, so we're halfway there. And Courtney read the book. And I have the book on my list. I just haven't gotten to it yet. But they had uh, downstairs, they had an exhibit from a merchant. I think it was a London merchant from the 1300s or something. And so it was all the kinds of things that he would have had in his house. One of which was a knit cap. Wow. With yarn from, they said, the 1300s. So I thought that was pretty wacky. So it was it was unclear to me if the hat itself had been around since that time or they had the yarn. I don't know. But I, they, it said yarn from the 14th century or whatever. So anyway, that was pretty cool. They I had, kind of hope that the hat was from I mean it, the 14th the 13th I can't imagine century. that they would if they knit, found yeah, if they found yarn then I would they would be knit up the hat if they knit up the hat but that is taking the special skein in your stash a little too far even <laughs> I am not that bad yeah so I'm assuming it was just the way they wrote the the little label right but then they also had these two books that were people's kind of flower diaries so like gardeners and i florilegium that's is that what they're called well i think that's yeah i think that's where they stem from stem ha um (laughs) so anyway so those made me think of courtney and it was really you know it was sweet so it was like people would draw pictures of their flowers and make notes yeah so that was and of course it had the unicorn tapestries and and uh they had these other great kings tapestries so uh, I recommend the cloisters when you're in New York City. And that is all. What is on the easel? Before we left for our adventure, I completed a still life that is hopefully the beginning of several. I believe it is. But I was so happy with how it turned out. The only challenge is that it is bigger than my scanner bed. So I'm going to have to figure out how I'm going to get a high res scan of that piece. And also before I left, I had staged like a few other still lives so that I could draw them while I was away, which I ended up not doing. So they await me this afternoon. So you staged them and took a photo. Uh Oh, that's super smart. Well, sometimes I have to sketch them out a little bit and make sure that the composition is working because I want to tweak things or change the color of something before I do the final final. And so it is it is a good way. I don't want to like overdraw it, but it it's a helpful step for me. One of the things that I've been doing with these still lifes that's totally different, a goal, idea, whatever, for the beginning of the year was to have less white space and to really try to fill the compositions. And so I've been taping up fabric from my sewing projects, like the patterned stuff in the background. Not that I'm going to paint it exactly, but either pulling a little reference from it or using a little patterning to help fill in the background. And that is so fun because I have a lot of fabric. (laughs) And then we went off to Mexico. We spent four days in Sayulita and then four days just south of there in Puerto Vallarta. And Sayulita was a huge 
surprise for me because of the birds. We had a balcony off of our suite and it was so joyful to wake up every morning and to watch these really interesting tropical birds chase each other right across my field of vision. And so the easel work in Mexico was researching and sketching these really colorful, loud tropical birds. That was how I spent the first four days of the trip, basically, was, what's this bird? What's this bird? Oh, I think that's a oropendula. And I, you know, I was surprised how often I was pretty close. So maybe all of this bird stuff is paying off because I am a lot faster about identifying if I don't know pretty closely what family the bird is. So that's been really fun. One of the things that I noticed in Mexico was the gorgeous linen patterns, like the, I think it's called the Otemi pattern. It's like animal, like fantastical animals and birds, interesting creatures into the embroidery. And I really loved seeing that. And I think that that definitely made an impact you know, in my brain somewhere. And then I'm jumping around a little bit on you. But then there were lots of people wearing like crocheted cover ups mm. on the beaches and stuff, just like a natural cream color, gorgeous patterns, and that open weave. So I think it's a crochet, right? Oh. So that caught my eye. By the time we left Saulita and I had drawn, I don't know, several birds, and we headed south to Puerto Vallarta, there were a ton of really interesting looking ceramic shops that I was eager to get to, but alas, maybe death by taco, and <laughs> and I was sort of down for the count for a few days. And so I didn't really draw much more while we were down there, but I took a lot of pictures of like the coastline and and some of the ceramics that I could see from like a shop window. And and so they might make their way into a piece here and there. But that was sort of the end of the line for the, the artwork. I'm really eager to get to the easel this afternoon because I picked up some eucalyptus branches and some lilies. I needed something really tall for this piece that I'm working on. And I'm super excited to dive back into it. I have finite time windows this week, and I'm eager to paint. Cool. So on the table, we are both a little light on the cooking this time because of, you know, travel. I do have a couple of things, but can I talk about New York food for a little bit? Yes, please. I had forgotten how hard it is to have a bad meal in New York. It was amazing. So, so good. Boy 2 was, well, I, I want to say he was nice and adventurous. He was up for whatever I picked. And I have to say, honestly, we ended up staying very Italian for the most part. We had a lot of pizza, just trying out different slices in various locations because he'd never had a like delicious slice of New York pizza that you just go and get for, I mean, it's up to like $4 now, but still. So that was amazing. It sounds like a bargain. 
yeah, four, yeah. $4 for yeah. that. But I'm remembering when I it's like when I used to live there and it was like a dollar a slice. Or something. I mean, I don't know if it was it was a while ago that I was there. It was much cheaper before. But we went to Momofuku Noodle Bar our first night. He was a little worried because that is actually his least favorite of the chili crisps out there. So he was kind of like, Ugh, now you're Shh, t- don't tell Dave Chang. <laughs> I know. I think he's doing OK, though. But our first night we were going to the opera and he has a location up. So this was a, a new location up uh, Columbus Circle. So Upper West Side again. And yeah, so we were able to get reservations and we had some amazing noodles and some amazing buns and some short ribs and soft serve for dessert. And it was delicious. And actually it ended up being, I think, one of his favorite places, which I mean, I guess it's kind of sad that it was at the beginning, but that's okay. We had some other amazing stuff. He had a 20 layer lasagna at one restaurant. That was great. We had, we had snails twice. We both love it. Escargot? We love it. We love, we do. I I mean, it it is all about the garlic, but yeah, delicious stuff. It was, it was good. I mean, then we had the chocolate chip cookie from Levan. And the one thing we did not manage to get to was like a really good bagel place. He is not a morning person, so I was kind of letting him sleep until the last possible minute. And so I kept thinking we would have a day when we'd like go get a bagel for breakfast. And it just really didn't happen. We would like we <laughs> we'd get up and it would be lunchtime. Oh my gosh. <laughs> time to get going. So so that was that'll be for next time. But yeah, that was super fun. As far as actual cooking, I had a couple of exciting at home food adventures. Dinner a love story had this idea for a winter caprese, which is so smart, roasted cherry tomatoes with burrata and basil. I guess you could not do the basil if you couldn't get any great basil, but I feel like you can always get at least marginal basil at the grocery store these times. So you roast off cherry tomatoes for like half an hour in a hot oven. And so then they get kind of sweet and they get more flavor. Jammy. And jammy. And are delicious and you throw them on the burrata and it's cold and you get that nice contrast. It was really quite good. And I have done something similar. Otolenghi, I think it was in his simple book, had it with the roasted tomatoes, but with cold yogurt. Ooh. And Lucas Volger has one with silken tofu and I think soy sauce. So it's definitely a thing and I recommend you try it. As we're in these weird in-between weather days. And we're definitely getting some of our spring produce. But but I think it's a nice way to get a little hit of flavor, a little bit of freshness, just as we try and get to the, the good vegetable season. <laughs> Not that winter doesn't have good vegetables, but this in-between business is just... I'm so tired of apples, is what I'm saying, people. Which I realize is not a vegetable. Anyway, the other thing I did is I got to use the preserved lemon. Yay! Okay. It was so good. Right? Yeah. So I just made a salad D- dressing. Definitely different. Yeah. It was amazing. Not And, and without being wildly different. Yeah. I think it's that saltiness. Yeah. It's a little more umami than yeah. just this citric acid, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I checked for preserved lemons in the... Eating My Books website, which is where you can search your cookbooks for keywords. Just so to find all of my recipes with preserved lemon, I'm sure there are other ways to do it, but I like to actually use my cookbooks since I have purchased them. Um, So Rancho Gordo, in one of their vegetarian 
cookbooks had a recipe for a garbanzo salad with cucumber, tomato, and arugula. And then in the dressing was the preserved lemon, and it was delicious. And you also put quinoa in there as well. So, so much protein in the salad. So it was kind of our, our entree dish. And you could probably use other beans besides the chickpeas. I actually used canned chickpeas, which... Oh, it was a little bit hard for me. I know, but I didn't have any. I'm I, not judging. I know. <laughs> I'm judging myself, but I did not have any Rancho Gordo chickpeas at the moment. And all of my other beans were very kind of brown and black. So it wasn't really going to, I guess the black beans might have worked as well. That would probably be tasty with cucumbers and tomatoes. Yeah, that would have been fine. But I did not think of it at the time. And anyway, we've been busy. The end of the school year is approaching and so everything is getting super super busy um so i did not feel like messing with cooking cooking beans at the time but so anyway the preserved lemon yeah i mean it was just i was kind of worried the whole time like is this gonna work what am i doing i don't understand i'm just okay i'm gonna do it and then yeah so good and and you know it's just a vinaigrette but then every once in a while you get that little hit of the so did you rinse it and chop it up and that's the one. And you didn't use the pulpy stuff? Uh, I did use the pulpy stuff. Oh. I just chopped, I mean, I kind of chopped it all up together and it was pretty mushy. And then you're using, you use some fresh lemon juice in the vinaigrette as well. Oh, that would brighten it so, even more. Yeah. I've got to figure out what else I want to do with it, but that was, that was a good fun start. How about you? Well, I've eaten my weight in tacos in the past week and my husband had done a tremendous amount of research to find which taco places were the best. And so there were some days when we had tacos for breakfast, tacos for lunch, and tacos for dinner. Generally eaten on a dusty street (laughs) made by a grandma in the back by hand, you know, patting the Oh, the tortillas. The tortillas, beautifully handmade uh, tortillas. And that was really fun. Lots of tinga, uh, pollo de tinga and al pastor, which now we need a fire roasting spit, I guess. I don't know. It It was really fun. The kids were totally into it. And the kids, they're like grown men. I know. Uh, But they were so happy to get tacos, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So I had done a little research about what would be a good souvenir, like a kitchen souvenir from Mexico. And they really have incredible, this is totally new to me, vanilla extract. Mm -hmm. And I am kind of guilty of always buying the Madagascar vanilla extract or making it myself. Remember I made all that vanilla extract with great bourbon and but there was one brand in particular that kept coming up in all of my searches and it's called the Blue Cattle Truck Trading Company Traditional Gourmet Mexican Vanilla. And I didn't find it in any of the shops, but I was also in really touristy spots and I suspect that's why. The other thing I wish I had grabbed was a big bag of Mexican sea salt. I think that that would have been, I'm kind of a salt weirdo, and I think that would have been a lot of fun to have. It they ha- I would see them like outside of markets, you know, mm-hmm. big bags sitting on the shelf. And I wish that I had dragged 
a bag of salt back to the United States. But I have not cooked anything until last night when I made really simple rice and fish and broccoli. And it was very simple. And I don't have anything to report on that. (laughs) So I have, I'm really happy to be back where I can cook with tap water. We're really lucky to have such great tap water and not have to have that be a concern. So I'm eager to cook, but I don't know what I'm going to cook yet. I'm still getting my legs back underneath of me. So my table is pretty empty, but full of possibilities. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. On the nightstand... So my New York adventures with books, I dragged the child to Strand Books. Child. Child. Measures Almost. in it. <laughs> Six feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. So Strand Books is a amazing Have, bookstore. So when you guys lived in New York City. Yeah. We were about three blocks from Strand Books. So you have been when it was like pre... Pre the Strand <laughs> Books. I mean, you've been... Like, you know it from... Yeah, it looked much nicer inside than I remember, is what she's trying to say. (laughs) I was like, oh, it's all clean, and there's a line, and there's like, oh, merchandise. Yeah, cute merchandise. (laughs) It was still lovely. It is So many books. It was a destination before. It was a destination 25, 30 years ago, even longer. But now it's like this whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. So it it was fun. We had We had a little bit of time to kill. Again, in between events. And so I was like, all right, we're going. And it was fun. Like, he likes books. He just, you know, as a high school student, doesn't have a lot of time to read stuff that he wants to read. So it was fun for him, I think, to be there and and look. He found some, I don't even know what it was. Anyway, he found a book that he wanted. So that was good. I got one that I think is translated from the Japanese. And it's called The Cat Who Saved the Bookstore or The Library as something. So. It's pretty that small. Rings a bell. Yeah. So I haven't read it yet, but it looks very amusing. And it had a cat and books on the cover. And so it just sounded perfect. Uh, and then I also went to the Morgan Library, which was super fun, especially after I had read the book about the first librarian. So I went to the Morgan Library by myself, which was fine. Boy, I had some homework to work on, poor child. It was beautiful. Oh my gosh. So cool. Really only three rooms. That's not true. They have three of the original rooms. They have his study, his office, and the librarian's office. It's just, it's amazing. It's just walls of books. And then they have some sort of mini collections being displayed from their collections. And they are, they are still collecting because they had a work from like 2019, an art book from 2019 out on display that, I mean, Ooh. presumably they had purchased after 2019, unless they have time travel, but I don't think so. So that was really cool. They didn't have very much about the librarian herself. I think they are putting together an exhibit, uh, maybe starting in May, there'll be some more information about her. So I would have liked more about that, but just the, the building itself was really amazing. And then they also have an annex that had two or three other displays of mostly sketches. I think you would have really liked it. I'm sure. From... Just whole collections of sketches from two artists. Uh, One was kind of architectural Roman stuff, and another was French, kind of very Rococo theater kind of things. So really cool. I think, you know, maybe an hour or two that I was there. 
and if it hadn't been the end of the week and a long day, I probably could have spent more, but I was a little bit, my brain was overloaded with amazing images. Um, and it was so cool. Like all the books, they had really big books and they had really tiny books. It was really fun. So I love tiny books. I know that's, I was thinking of you there too. I love big books too. Yeah. They had a first folio. They have um, a Gutenberg and so all sorts of cool things there. So that was fun. And then as far as things that I have been reading, it all went really dark and depressing in my, my readings. I'm not sure what happened. I was all excited because I had been doing a lot of literary reading. I was like, oh, I'm going to, I've got a bunch of genre fiction coming. It's going to be great and cheerful and funny and nope. Did not work out quite the way I thought. I'm not sure what happened to my, to my cue anyway, but great stuff. So let's chat about that. First, we start off in the Wayback Machine. I listened to A is for Alibi and B is for Burglar by Sue Grafton. I know. So the first of these came out in 1982. So is did, it? I think so. So I did not read them when they first came out, but I did start reading them. There were only four or five of them out. And so I binged them all in high school, whatever there was. And then I think I got to college and they were coming out, whatever, once a year. And I just didn't have time. So I have actually read these books before, but I have not gotten very deep into the canon. There are 25 books and that is all we're going to get, which is very sad, but I respect that. Yeah, so we'll see. So I, I, I heard someone else talking about them. They had read the why is for whatever why is for. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, that would be great because there are so many of them. It I will be entertained in my audio reading for a very long time. Kinsey Milhone is our detective in this series. She is 32, at least in the first book, twice divorced, ex-cop, currently working as a private investigator in Santa Teresa, California, which is a stand-in for Santa Barbara, I believe. She spends most of her days checking on cheating spouses and people who are scamming the insurance company. In A is for Alibi, a woman shows up in her office who was sent to jail for murdering her husband, and she's been released because um, she served her time after seven years. But she says she didn't do it. So she would like Kinsey to look into who actually killed her husband. And so we're off to the races. B is for Burglar. A woman shows up at her office and would like Kinsey to find her sister because she needs some legal documents signed and she can't track her down. So both these books have lots of twists and turns. I thought they were quite good mysteries. The first one I figured out, I think I actually more remembered that one. So I don't think I can give myself any credit. The other one, I was like, I have no idea what's happening here. So I think that's pretty good. It is hilarious because they are deep in the 80s. And she'll describe people or clothing and you and people are smoking inside and just light up like casually in, in someone's office. And it is it is just a little time warp. She gets a she gets an answering machine in the second book because she had an answering service beforehand. But now she's on an answering machine. So it is a super fun little time capsule. I am interested to see how far they get. I mean, I guess they're going to stay in the 80s the whole time because the second book takes place only two weeks after the first one. So they're just, you know, keeping it pretty tight there. I mean, maybe she'll move things along a little bit. I don't know. So I'm kind of, as a historical curiosity, almost interested in, in listening to them just for that. Uh, but I am enjoying, you know, having a strong strong female character from the 80s, which is kind of interesting. She's definitely her own person. So I'm enjoying 
those, uh, and we will see what the next one holds. And then I read River Woman, River Demon by Jennifer Given. This one, Libby was doing some sort of unlimited book for all, um, and this was the book they chose. I think I had tried it once before, and just the book was not at all for me. This one I found much more interesting. It is the story of Ava, who is a glass artist and lives with her husband and two children in New Mexico. And when she was 15, she and her best friend were night swimming and her friend drowned. Uh, Rumors went around that Ava was responsible. The police determined that it was an accident, um, but she's obviously been traumatized by that. And it's been a big part of her life. And she had kind of not gotten over it, but was moving on with her life. And just recently, for whatever reason, uh, she is seeing her friend again, like her ghost. She's feeling haunted. She's having blackouts. So she's drinking to deal with the stress, which is not a good combination. She's not feeling inspired anymore. And one night she's home by herself. She hears screaming at the river by their house. She runs down there and her husband is holding the body of their best friend, godmother of their children, business partner, then he is arrested and the rest of the book is looking at is kind of you know who actually killed him he seems to think the wife that ava did it so there's lots of mystery and intrigue there is also some witchiness um her husband is a university professor (laughs) of uh i guess the black diaspora magics and she has her uh, mexican heritage and her mom was a witch so it's more more of a realistic witchiness I guess, kind of sage and poppets and and that kind of, it's really, it's not quite so magical or, you know, fantasy-like. Down to earth. Down to earth witchiness. I I enjoyed this. Their relationship was really interesting. The family dynamics were really cool. It was a kind of a darker mystery ended up being than I was expecting, but I enjoyed it and wanted to find out what happened. And I found it all very satisfying. And then a delightfully witchy one, Venko by Sherry Demolaine. Lucky lives in Toronto with her grandmother, who is starting to experience dementia more and more. And Lucky has been working temp jobs, which are not great. And they just found out that they're about to be evicted. So things are not going very well for Miss Lucky. But then she finds a silver spoon buried in the basement of their building. And the next day, a woman shows up, and she is very professionally and expensively dressed. And she says, hey, we have a job for you in Salem, Massachusetts. Are you interested? And Lucky's got nothing else going on, so she figures it's worth a try. Turns out that she is witch number six. There was a prophecy years ago about the coven that would be reformed. And so a witch at the time in Salem enchanted seven silver spoons and sent them out into the world. And the idea is that when the time was right, the seven witches would find the spoons and find each other, and the coven would come together, and evil and hate and the patriarchy would end. So obviously, there is also an immortal vampire-like guy, witch hunter, out there trying to stop them. They have nine days to find the seventh witch. Uh, So it's, it's, it's all over the place. Lucky is off trying to find the new witch. There's all kinds of different magic types and traditions. It was super fun. Leaning a little bit much into the men are all evil system, but they did also have a wide variety of women in the book. So I like that as well. 
Venko by Sherry Nimaline. Did you I get read it? it you did? Oh, yay! Okay, wait. So we'll take a little break. What did you think? Do you agree with my summary? I'm so glad you did the summary. It was perfect. I think your analysis about it being overly man Haiti was right on, especially now. And it's it takes place in modern in modern times. I also felt that it was a little bit predictable. If yeah, you know what okay. I mean. Yeah, I'll give that's fair. But I loved the symbolism in it, and that really propelled me forward. I loved that yellow birds just happen to be this thing that witchish, witchish. <laughs> I loved the spoon because that is an actual real souvenir from the Daniel Lowe silversmith, and and it is. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's oh, a cool. real thing. So that was an excellent little twist. I also like that they hopscotched around the country a little bit. You know, we kept our roots in Salem, and then we had a little journey, if you will, to take. There's some spots that are not really particularly witchy that we visited, and then spots that were. Like, New Orleans has strong cultural ties to like voodoo and there's lots of ghost stories and witch stories associated with New Orleans too. So I felt like the sense of place was really fun. And then back to Buzzards Bay and Salem, which is of course... There's a history. Yeah, slight history there. And I like the, I like the sisterhood stuff. I just felt that it was a little heavy handed about... All men, you know? Yeah. And I also... And the witch was really dark. Like, the scenes with him were darker than I was expecting. Yeah. So that is something to be aware of based... Because the rest of the book has a certain lightness. Yeah. And he shows up, and it's super creepy and dark. And, really. And I felt that the, the other witches in the coven were wonderfully diverse and interesting and... I don't think she afforded that to the other men of the world. Yeah. So that's my, I mean, I'm, it's so rare that I would give a criticism to a book, but this was a great beach read for me. Yeah. And it was, kept me captivated and I like a bird metaphor, so, or, or a symbol. So super fun. And I thank you for the recommendation. I was very excited to be able to, to give one to you. And then I read The Twifford Code by Janice Hallett. This one just came out in January, I think. This was also super fun. So Stephen Smith just got out of prison after 11 years for a crime that we eventually find out what exactly it was and why he was there. So things have changed a lot in the 11 years. And so the the story is told through a series of transcripts of audio recordings that he has made into an iPhone 4 that his son gave him. And so he is telling a story for his son. And he doesn't totally understand how the phone works, or how any of it works. But he is trying to make amends for his life. Uh, he had kind of been in and out of prison. He grew up in a rough part of London, and got mixed up with a gang. And so he's trying not to go back to that and, and make 
amends. But one thing that had always bothered him was when he was in high school, um, I think it was like a freshman or sophomore, first or second year of high school, he was in the special reading class with uh, like five other kids and a teacher that was really inspiring. And they started reading this book by Edith Twifford. And it's based on the Eden Blyton books. Um, so it was books written during World War II. And they aren't read anymore because they're kind of not in tune with modern sensibilities, but they're about a bunch of kids. And he finds a copy of the book, brings it into the class. The teacher starts reading it to them. And she decides to take them on a field trip to go see where the author who lived by the seaside wrote her stories because these are inner city kids haven't been out of London ever. So she takes them away for a day and then she disappears and he doesn't remember a lot about what happened. So he wants to try and find his teacher. So he starts looking into it, talking to the other kids. There's a lot of strange things going on. So we end up with code breaking and mystery and where's the teacher and Nazi gold and World War II and all these things. Super fun. Twists and turns. Definitely wish I had this in a hard copy instead of on my Kindle because it's one of those things where you want to be flipping back and forth. But I thought it was really well done. Very clever. And yeah, I really liked it a lot. Super quick read. And then A Restless Truth by Freya Marsk which is the second in a trilogy. So this one is magic, fantasy, shipboard romance. <laughs> and uh, I got to check off one of the boxes for my Storygraph challenge, which so another goal reached for me. And this was my Storygraph challenge where uh, I had two challenges going on there. Storygraph is like Goodreads, but an independent alternative and they have a couple different challenges reading challenges going for the year and so I'm doing uh, so this is for my genre challenge so they are trying to get you to read books that you wouldn't normally have read although most of the fiction ones is something I already would have read so <laughs> so it's a little bit mm, for me but anyway I still get to check it off so Maud is sailing uh, this takes place in about early 1900s. I want to say turn of the century, but I have to specify which century now because I'm old. So Maud is sailing back to England. She had sailed to America. I guess I should specify where she's sailing back from. She had sailed to America to track down a magician who had gone there 50 years before in the wake of a thing they had done. It all relates to the first book. I don't need to be terribly specific. And so they're bringing her back to try and, you know, save the world kind of thing. But the older woman is murdered their first day on ship. And so Maud is now trying to figure out who murdered her, what happened to the secret object that she was carrying. Violet is someone that her brother, Maud's brother, had seen in visions as being important to this, we'll call it a quest, adventure, and a couple other people. And... It was really enjoyable. I loved the first book. It has all of the genres that I like in one, right? It's got romance. It's got fantasy. It's got murder mystery. So that was really great. The relationship between the characters is good. The adventures are good. It's got some snark and some humor. Uh, so basically all the things that I like. It was great. It's got a foul-mouthed parrot. So, you know, all good and on a boat. Uh, so I enjoyed that very much. Although I would, you could read it by its own. I would definitely start with the first one. It is definitely set up to be a whole, 
whole series or trilogy at least. And then we get back into the literature. How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu. Oh, I was not expecting. No, that's not true. I was expecting this one to be pretty dark. It is revolves around a worldwide plague. And in the first joyful, super joyful, even better. The first wave of the plague kills only children. So you do need to be prepared for that. But as far as the storytelling goes, it was beautiful. So each chapter is uh, focuses on a different character. It's told from their perspective and kind of people mostly in San Francisco, a lot in Japan. And there's connections between all the characters. So that's kind of one of the themes of the book is how everyone is connected. And some of them are very clear. There's a husband and wife who appear in different chapters. There's two brothers who are in different chapters. But there's also a woman who bought a painting from the wife of the scientist who appears in the first chapter. So kind of tenuous, but it all kind of goes full circle. It starts in 2030 when climate change has melted the permafrost and it's revealing all sorts of mammoth bones and all these things. And one of the items that is revealed is the mummified body of a girl who died 30,000 years ago from what seems to be a virus. And that's what kicks it all off. Scientist man. Um, it's not their fault. <laughs> well, it actually, in this case, it is. Oh, They're messing around with it. They're like, oh, let's study oh, it. Oh, oh. Let's see what happens with this, with this virus. Okay. So that doesn't go well. And it is so all over the world that it changes economy. It changes how everything functions how what our focus is on in in everything so that part was really interesting the relationships between the people are interesting and then every once in a while it goes a little bit sci-fi on you so there's also that um i thought it was really beautiful it lasts uh, this the full scope is over at least a hundred years wow more in and and beyond a little bit it was really interesting it was really beautiful and then part of it is, you know, it's in San Francisco. So what was the publication date on that? Do you know? Within the past year, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that he wrote it during the pandemic, but he might have started it beforehand. Yeah. It's got it, its late. It's, it's got its cautions on it. Yeah. It. I felt it was worth it, but it is kind of hard, especially at the beginning when people don't know what's going on and it's still pretty fresh, I think, for all of us. But at the end, uh, I, I was glad that I had read it and, and I thought it was worth it. And then finally, Burnham Wood by Eleanor Caton. Uh, she won the Booker Prize a few years ago, and this is her latest book. So Mira lives in New Zealand, and she has started a, a guerrilla gardening collective where they find unused bits of land, public, not even public land. It could be, you know, just a strip of land next to a building that's not being used, and they'll start gardening there. And they do also find homeowners that have little bits of land, and they'll garden there. But they also do Patches. more gorilla, yeah. <laughs> illegal, shall we say. But, you know, for the public good. And then they sell their produce. and But they've been doing it for about five years, not making any money. So they are just trying to figure out how to make this go bigger, be self-sustaining. And there is a landslide that cuts off uh, a town. And so the town kind of empties. And she sees this thing. There's a, a house there. The guy just got a knighthood, but he lives up in, I don't know, somewhere else. He doesn't spend time. That's kind of his country house. So she thinks, there's an empty house in an empty town with all this great land. 
and the guy got his knighthood for conservation efforts. So obviously, even if he knew he would be, he would be on board. So she goes down to check it out. And while she's there, she runs into this American billionaire who says, oh, actually, I just bought it. I'm building my end of the world bunker, but I like your guerrilla tactics. Go ahead and do whatever you like, you know, go ahead and, and, and do your gardening thing. I think it's great. And here's some seed money. Ha <laughs> ha, literally. Things go very sideways and weird from there. I was not expecting it to be quite as dark as it went. There are secrets on both sides. There are some other characters that come in. There's Mira's ex-boyfriend who is back in town and very suspicious of everything. There is her partner for the past, or, you know, business partner for the past four years who is on her way out, but doesn't want to leave Mira in the lurch. And so what's going to happen there with their relationship? It is very interesting kind of millennial mind situation. The characters are all really interesting and distinct, and her writing is really crisp. I just, yeah, I really enjoyed this book. And then, you know, you got a Shakespeare reference, and you got to love that. I'm very excited because this is on my oh yeah TBR. Yep. So... But um, speaking of seed money, mm -hmm. you know how I keep trying to find artist and author interviews. Um, one that I watched this week was from Ai Weiwei, who like 12 years ago did a whole exhibit at the Tate. I love the Tate Yahoo mm -hmm. or, uh, YouTube page. He did an exhibit at the Tate with ceramic sunflower seeds. And it was extraordinary. It was a really moving video. I'll put a link in my show notes so that people can access it if they um, haven't already seen it. I know I'm 12 years behind the ball on this one, but the seed money reference <laughs> reminded me. And then actually I have one more, which is not on my list, but I just, I know I finished it because it's for book club and book club is tomorrow. Edie Richter is not alone by Rebecca Handler. I'm excited for that one too. Oh, okay. Um, she is a local author. Which was kind of one of the reasons we picked it. So anyway, so Edie Richter is has uh, comes back to San Francisco. She's been living in Boston with her husband. Uh, her father has early Alzheimer's and passes away. And they decide uh, her husband gets uh, an offer from his company to go live in Australia for a year and work. And she decides that a change of pace is what is needed. So they move to Australia. So it's partially about the death of her father and then the repercussions and living in Australia, in Western Australia, also in Perth. Her style is really distinct. It's very short paragraphs, very, very crisp as well in a different way. I really liked it. I think I'm super interested to see what people think of it. There's a bunch of stuff that goes on that was su very surprising, but I really, I enjoyed it. And there's a lot of stuff I can't say about it. <laughs> because that would spoil it and uh but it was it was it was thought provoking and and I'm lo really looking forward to the discussion tomorrow night. And that is actually all of my books. How about you? Nice list. Speaking of lists, I combed through the Women's Prize long list the other day and populated my library holds and there my library had all but one, all but one or two of the books. The list is looks awesome. I've already read two or three books from it. The Barbara Kingsolver is on there. The new Maggie Farrell, the marriage portrait. 
was on there. So it's a really good book list, and I hope you'll take a look through it because I think it will inspire your to-be-read list. Okay, aside from Venco, which we talked about, I listened to Thin Air by Anne Cleves, which is book six of the Shetland Mysteries. We really should have had a body count going for today's podcast because all of our books, sadly, (laughs) yeah, there's a little bit of a body count. Okay, so we're back in Shetland with a group of friends who are on a retreat or um, they call it a, a hen's, what is it called? Oh, it's a bachelorette party. Yeah, but they use a different phrase. Hen party. Hen fairing, maybe? I don't know. Oh, hen, that could hen be. something. Yeah. And one of them is really interested in this particular island. It's not Shetland. It's like one of the more northerly islands. It's one of the Shetland islands. Right. Yeah. It's where there's a ghost of a young girl in a white dress called, that everybody calls Perry Lizzie. And it's not an ancient myth or or lore. It It was a true accident. They aren't sure what happened to the girl, and they kind of use it as a cautionary tale. So what's important about this book is, I mean, obviously we care about the body count, and we feel bad for those people. However... Jimmy Perez gets his groove back, and I'm really happy about that. And there's also some, like, good tension building happening with him and his superior officer, and I like how that is unfolding. It feels modest, but satisfying. Of course, there's lots of good birds because we're in Shetland, and Shetland has a tremendous population of skuas and different kinds of eagles and birds of prey and water birds. And I just love, I love all those bird references. That's Thin Air by Anne Cleves. It is a great in the background when you're traveling, when you don't feel well, man, she's just, she's great. And I really like her narrator. The other two books I have for you, one is a... A mini. It's a tiny. It's uh, so tiny. Yeah, I just, whenever I see these at the library, I can't resist. So this is just, it's a palm-sized short story or novella by Madeline Miller called Galatea by Madeline Miller. And this is a retelling or reshaping of the Pygmalion and Galatea myth. It is solely from Galatea's voice. So the Pygmalion myth, if I, and I am not strong about with my mythology, but Pygmalion was an artist. He was a sculptor and he carved Galatea out of stone. And because he felt that real women were strumpets and harlots and prostitutes and because they never blushed, they were unworthy. This is a really problematic, misogynistic, patriarchal myth, to be sure. But I think it's important to remember that a lot of popular culture has been based off this myth. My Fair Lady, She's All That, Pretty Woman, there's probably a hundred more. What Madeline Miller has done has given Galatea 
a voice that she does not really get in any of the mythology because in the mythology, it's a lot of Pygmalion falling in love with his own work and then begging the goddess to bring his work to life so that he can entrap her and basically destroy her in human form or smother her in human form. So this book is how Galatea is in the hospital and she is kept there. She's kind of kept prisoner and she is made to submit to all of her husband's whims when he comes to visit her. And it it's just from her perspective and how she knows what she needs to do to keep her sanity and keep herself together and escape. And it is a super fast read. And when I read the this particular one has the afterword by Madeline Miller. And this was like kind of an exercise that came about when she was writing um, Song of Achilles and how she was trying to try out different voices with different characters from mythology and how this one voice was just really strong. And so I think it's a really successful exercise, if you want to call it that, that turned into its own little gemstone. I really recommend it. Plus, it's adorable. Um, The book, the book that is. My real prize, though, for, for books this week is I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay. I'm reading that right now. Oh, no. <laughs> well, just don't tell me how it ends. Okay. How exciting. Okay. We are like, We're really in, in sync. sync. <laughs> this is such a great book. This is the story. It's true. This is the story of Bodhi. Bodhi is a true crime podcaster and like film teacher. And she is compelled to go back to her boarding school in New Hampshire and teach a class for like a two week session or something. And when she was in boarding school, and this is high school boarding school, there was a death of a classmate. Somebody was found guilty of her death, but it never, there are lingering doubts. And so one of the possibilities that she floats out to her podcast students, because she's teaching a class on podcasting, is that they look into like a couple school myths. And one of them is this particular case of classmate of hers. Peppered into this narrative is that very particular cadence of true crime where there's a litany of this. Is this the one about the girl who went swimming late at night? Is this the one about the girl who, you know, rescued the dog and then was never seen again? Is this the one about, you know, because there are a million cases of violence against women and her backlog here is great. I mean, she's got a lot to choose from. So that cadence, that special victims unit, unsolved mysteries, true crime podcast through line is really was interesting to me. The other thing that I loved about this was the very interesting second person narration. So the it's not overt, but it is startling when you encounter it, because at first 
you're indicted in that you, because who else is she talking to? You're not sure yet. And it's not until you're a ways into it that you understand who that second person is. And it's a very powerful device because the further we get into the novel, we realize how complicated that could be. Truly, truly complicated. The first two thirds of the novel are Bodhi working with her students, trying to build like an interesting podcast about this crime and her reliving her memories of it and doubting her own reliability, which is in an interview that I heard with Rebecca Mackay, probably the most honest, you know, rather than somebody who's like, no, I'm certain this is what happens. We are all fallible with our memories. That's one of the hard things about it is that we're all we all must confront our adolescent selves in this novel in a way that uh, is not pleasurable. <laughs> but then the the last portion of the novel is like um, an unwanted high school reunion in a way. And it's very interesting to see how people unfold. I am not one for a high school reunion. And so I'm happy to live through vicariously through someone else's. And this is like the worst high school reunion mm -hmm. ever. I don't want to say a too, too much more because Monica is, as we heard, reading along with this book. I think that some people will be really upset with the ending. Mm. And and I want intriguing. to talk to those people. I want to talk to everybody who reads it, actually, because I think it's it's really interesting. It's it's so well written. And I think her approach to memory and this this part of our culture that really st want, everybody wants to know what happened, but some people don't want to relive it. I think it's it's all fascinating. This is really well done. And I hope you like it. Well, I'm enjoying it so far. So, and I, yeah, it definitely keeps moving right along. This book kept my interest so well. That and it's a big book. It's a big book. I had all but like 70 pages read before I left for Mexico. And I didn't want to take a big, gigantic yeah. library book with 70 pages. And so I tabled it, went to Mexico, came back Oof. and finished it. Like I came in and was like, oh, I have the Rebecca Mackay. And was so excited to finish the last 70 pages when wow. I got home and w didn't miss a beat. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great well, book. so I'll, I'll be reporting next time. I think I'm probably a third of the way through. I just started it yesterday. So yesterday, the day Delicious. Before. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. That was lots of chatting. Thanks for listening. And until next time, make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.